Studying the preceding darkness makes the experience of studying the light that much more enjoyable. Without the Lord's misery and suffering and gruesome death, there can be no glorious and vindicating resurrection. First this morning, let's look at the participants and their actions in the events leading to the death of our Lord. The prime force in the events of those days stems from one decision, a decision in which we were not included. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. John 17, verse 24. The phrase, before the creation of the world, is used four times in the Bible. It references an event that occurred before time began. The foundation of the world happens in Genesis 1. Yet God is timeless. Time is his creation, and he exists outside of its realm. God most certainly thought and did things before he wrote and implemented our history. We have precious few glimpses into this, for lack of a better word, time. But this is one, and it is a very important one. In this first passage that we read, we hear Jesus himself in dialogue with God, his Father. He references a transaction of a people who have been given to him by the Father himself. The language is not clear here about when the transaction occurred, but we are told that God the Father's love for his Son, Jesus, is before the creation of the world. This language establishes Jesus as being present before the work of creation. In addition, we read in 1 Peter 1, 13 and following, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to your passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, so far in these two passages, we see that before the foundation of the world, Jesus was foreknown and loved by the Father, and that a chosen people were given to Jesus by the Father. So when did this transaction take place? Ephesians 1. Now it is hard to keep track of the he's and him's and to who they are referring to this passage thanks to our ineffective language. So let me assist your understanding of this passage by clarifying who is being referenced. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, that is God the Father, chose us in him, that is still God the Father, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, that is God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself 
as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that is Jesus Christ, or the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he, God the Father, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth, forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, that is Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In this wonderful passage, we see that the transaction occurs before the world began. It was God the Father's plan to choose some from his work of creation to be holy and blameless. But we need to stop here and think for a moment. Some people believe God the Father to have been reactionary to the event of sin, having come up with a plan after the problem. But here we see that before the words, let there be light, were uttered, a reserve of people would be set apart to be holy and blameless. If creation was pronounced very good by God, why would there be a need to separate a group of people to be holy and blameless? Wouldn't everybody created by a holy and blameless God be holy and blameless already? But see, that's the beauty of this revelation of God's actions. God knows about the insurrection before it even starts. Why then would he create, knowing that the fall was going to happen? Unless, of course, the fall was part of the initial design of God for his creation. Nonetheless, we were predestined for adoption in God's family by an act of redemption that comes through the blood of his beloved. I love this passage of scripture because it starts with the plan of God before time is created and ends with God's plan for the end of all time, A to Z, Alpha to Omega. In Revelation 13, it reads, Also, it, that is the first beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In this text, we see that not only was a transaction made between God the Father and God the Son, but that it was recorded in a book. Does God need a book to remember? Well, if not, it must be symbolic. Now, the idea of a book with the names of the saints of God recorded upon it, its pages, that was written before time allows us to know that the book was completed and not an ongoing series of books. There is a book, and it is ancient and predates all of our time. The transaction has been met, agreed upon, and there is a record of it written by God himself. There will be no altering of it, and there will be no faltering in its execution. There will be a people reserved to be part of God's own family, and it will cost God the Father his only uniquely begotten Son, and it will cost God the Son his life. Those who think wrongly that because God is omnipotent and can do whatever he desires, that this idea of costing God anything is impossible, they fail to realize that the cost in this transaction is not something God had made and can make again. No, the cost is God himself, the triune God, 
eternally three in one, eternally together, eternally <coughs> inseparable, separates as God the Father meets out our rightfully deserved punishment on his Son. He places all of his righteous wrath upon his innocent Son. And God the Father, who cannot abide with sin nor even look upon it, turns away from his Son. 2 Corinthians 5. <coughs> For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus, receiving the intense punishment for the, human, the humanly incalculable amount of our collective sin, feels the abandonment of his father. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, verse 34. You know, we have no real idea what God experienced on that day. We can imagine some idea of the grief. We understand the ties of family and the relationships between fathers and sons. And in the account of Abraham and Isaac, we can wonder at the faith of Abraham to bring himself to bind Isaac and place him on the altar of stone, atop the wood, and raise his knife ready to plunge it into his only son, his unique son, born in his and Sarah's old age. And yet... He is not allowed to do so. God commands him to stop and spares Abraham of tremendous grief, grief like no father should know. And God spares Abraham's beloved son Isaac from a gruesome and humiliating death. Abraham and Isaac brought to the brink of disaster and halted before falling over the precipice. They are shadows of this. Romans 8.32, For God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 3, 14 through 17. God the Father did not passively observe this travesty. No, scripture is clear. God the Father was clearly active. In Matthew 27, starting with verses 45 through 54, it says, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion 
and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake. What took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So what occurred during the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, first there was darkness over all of the land. People have erroneously speculated that this was a simple eclipse. If this was an eclipse, it was the greatest eclipse in all of time, as the longest recorded and projected eclipse, according to NASA, was or will be just over 12 minutes in length. The darkness mentioned in this passage of scripture lasts for three hours. And I think the absence of a reason for the darkness also strengthens this argument. Eclipses are relatively rare, but not completely unheard of, even in ancient times. <coughs> they would have known what was happening naturally if the eclipse would have been occurring. But the fact that no cause was given for the darkness means that they had no idea what was causing it. All they knew was that they were experiencing midday sunshine one moment and complete darkness over a considerable amount of land the next. It was during this darkness that Jesus calls out to God the Father for forsaking him. I believe the darkness is a result of God the Father turning his back on his son. <clears throat> Secondly, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and gives up his spirit. Immediately the curtain in the temple that separated the people from the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, is torn in two from top to bottom. Now to understand the scope of the dimensions of this curtain, S. Michael Houdman commented that Solomon's temple was 30 cubits high, as recorded in 1 Kings 6.2, but Herod had increased the height to 40 cubits, according to the writings of Josephus, a first century Jewish historian. There is uncertainty as to the exact measurement of a cubit, but it is safe to assume that this veil was somewhere near 60 feet high. Josephus also tells us that the veil was four inches thick and that horses tied to each side could not pull the veil apart. The book of Exodus teaches that this thick veil was fashioned from blue, purple, and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Now considering the size and the thickness of the curtain, no man could simply rip it. In addition, it was torn from top to bottom, up 60 feet, another impossibility for a man to do. No, God tore it apart, forever ending the shadow of God's holy separation from sinful mankind. The way for reconciliation had just been forged in the death of his son, and God spares no time. Thirdly, there was a great earthquake and the rocks split. Have you experienced an earthquake? Was it so intense that the rocks split? In addition, the tombs were also open. This was an incredible earthquake. Now we may understand that a large and powerful earthquake would be able to split rocks in two and open tombs. But what happens next, no earthquake can ever do. In verse 52, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep raised. No one raises the dead except for the author of life himself. Amen. God is life. Life is uniquely his to give and take away. And verse 53 reads that they went into the holy city and appeared to many 
after the resurrection of Jesus. So that means that these resurrected saints were alive again for at least three days. Now why would God do this? Well, I believe he is validating his working in what has just transpired. We have unexplainable darkness, a tremendously thick curtain ripped in two, a powerful earthquake that splits rocks, and the raising of dead to life. Only God can do these things. Now notice that they are also dreadful acts. To validate his working, God could have chosen less frightening events. But the fact that they are, in fact, dreadful demonstrates to us God's grief and displeasure at the loss of his son. Yet, at the same time, they also show us that his will has been done. The accord made between the Godhead has come to fruition. And because it is God's plan, it is very good. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 11, 12. Lastly, this morning, I want us to consider the necessity for us to have a dying Savior. I believe we spend a great deal of our time on earth trying to justify our actions in light of the moral code written on our hearts. We know we do wrong. We do not need another person to reveal to us that our actions were wrong. Often, when chided about our conduct, the person chiding us is merely agreeing with what our consciences already know. We spend a great deal of time and energy comparing ourselves to each other. We believe, in error, that comparative quantity of sin versus other people's quantity of sin justifies our actions. We might say, there are many people throughout history that have done worse things than I. Maybe. But what if all of those people who are, you are referencing are all in hell and eternal torment, receiving justly what their amount of sin requires? If all of the people you consider to be worse sinners than you are currently being punished, how would knowing that allow you to find a reference to where you fall in the coming judgment of God? Where is the line drawn for punishment of sins? With you? Who can know? What if I told you it's not about how many sins you've ever committed, but if you ever committed a sin? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James 2, 10 and 11. I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy for I am holy, Leviticus 11.44. You know, God mentions this idea of us being holy because he is holy no less than seven times in the Old Testament. Holiness is immensely important to God. God also has something to say about those who are not holy. The soul whose sins shall die. 
Ezekiel 18.20. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9, verse 27. You see the line that God draws for us to receive a reward versus receiving wrath is complete holiness. Now if you're listening to my voice today, you already know that any chance for you to have lived a perfectly holy life is long gone. You, as well as everyone here, are a sinner. You have transgressed, disobeyed, and disregarded the law of God. And subsequently, you are storing up for yourself wrath the wrath of God himself, this same God who displayed a fraction of his power with the unexplainable events that we looked at moments ago. Because God is holy and just, he must punish rebellion and sin. There is no escaping the coming wrath from God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10, verse 31. So what will become of you in that moment as your earthly life fades away and you fall into the hands of your Creator and gaze into the eyes of the Ancient of Days? What will you say to escape his wrath in that moment? At least I wasn't as bad as that person you've already thrown into hell? No, nothing you could say would spare you. You would share the same fate as all who die without being made right with God. Of hell, the scriptures say that all who enter are bound, cut into pieces, cast into outer darkness, and into the fiery furnace, where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. There you will begin an eternal life sentence of misery, paying for the sins committed during your life on earth. Unlike here, there is no option for parole or early release. No. All who enter the judgment of God stay there forever. All of this tells us that an eternal lifetime of agonizing torment cannot pay for even one transgression against God. Your life, your blood, your sacrifice, your penance cannot appease God's wrath over what you've done. And so it's hopeless then. Humanistically speaking, yes it is. There is nothing we can do. But remember the contract between God the Father and God the Son before the creation of the world. There is the Lamb's book of life that has already been written. Those whose names are written in that book have been predestined by God to become holy and blameless. How is that going to happen if everyone is a sinner and God must judge sin to him being, due to him being just and holy? First off, God does not merely sweep the sin under the rug and pretend it never happened. No, he's going to deal with it with the same amount of wrath. But instead of placing the wrath on those chosen people, he's going to meet it out on his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Of Jesus' substitutionary death, the scriptures say, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned onto everyone onto his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, he considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, living stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53. So brethren, Jesus has to die. He must pay the penalty of death to appease the tremendous wrath of God. Otherwise, God's wrath remains. How can one man's death cover the amount of sins for many chosen people? Especially if our punishment never satiates the wrath of God. Two truths. Number one, Jesus never sinned. He lived a completely holy life before God the Father never incurring the wrath of God for himself. He was innocent in the truest, most absolute sense of that word. Number two, Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. The blood of a sinful man is worthless, but the blood of God has incalculable value and tremendous power. And if it is applied to the darkest stain left by your sin, it washes you clean. So what will it be for you today? Will you continue on as you have been, accruing wrath for yourself until that fateful day when your eyes close in death and you begin your eternal life sentence? Or will you cast yourself on the mercy of God and plead for Him to save you? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 1, verse 18. But will he even bother to save you, especially with the kind of life you've led? Listen carefully to Jesus himself, God the Son, in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your plan of redemption. Thank you for bringing it to fruition. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for being willing to be our sacrifice, to purchase us by your blood as a people to be holy and blameless. We ask, Lord, that you would bless these truths to our hearts and prepare us for the service yet to come where we will celebrate your great resurrection. May the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be praised, and we ask this in his name. We have 25 minutes before we are at the next thing. So 25 minutes to clean up and get upstairs with the bathroom and all that jazz. And our next service will begin at 10.30. Thank you.